Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 13. The book of Romans in chapter 13. We've entitled today's sermon, The Christian Citizen. I thought about how blessed I am to be able to preach this from an American pulpit, whereas perhaps it might be a greater challenge to preach it, as it were, from a secretive pulpit in some countries in the Middle East or North Africa or in parts of Asia where governments are not as friendly to Christian value nor to religious freedom as we enjoy here. And so the Apostle Paul writes, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Patriotism, politics, preaching, praying, praising God. Can they mix? Should they mix? It's instructive to study the life of the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. Paul was certainly the Christian's Christian, the missionary's missionary, the Apostle's Apostle. And yet while he faithfully served the Lord, he was also firmly connected to his Jewish heritage and nationality and his citizenship in the Roman Empire. Years after Paul, St. Augustine would write that as believers, we are citizens, as it were, of two worlds, the one temporal, or this earthly world, and the one spiritually eternal, God's kingdom to come. The Lord Jesus summed it up as always the best. But he said in Matthew 22 and verse 21, 
Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so as we look at the text this morning, first of all, note our responsibility, chapter 13 and the beginning part of the verse. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. When the Apostle Paul would write a letter, or sometimes we call it an epistle, to the various churches, and we have those recorded in the New Testament, he would often begin a letter with the first portion of the letter being about what we should believe, or what we might call doctrine. He would finish the letter with how we should behave, or what we might call duty. It's no different in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with doctrine, primarily the doctrine of salvation. Chapters 12 through 16 deal primarily with duty. And in chapter 13, he now deals with our responsibility to the human government under which we live, or under which anyone lives at the time They are reading and being instructed by these inspired scriptures. And so he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now why would Paul perhaps consider this an important part of practical Christian instruction? Well, it suggested there were some who mistakenly said, I have given my allegiance to God. So I owe no allegiance to any man-made institution. Secondly, it's believed that in the Roman church there were a number of Jewish believers. And there had been an uncomfortable history between the Jews and the Romans when the Romans had come to conquer them. Many believe that they were evil to have conquered them. Many believe that they were evil in their taxation. Many believe they were evil in some of their requirements religiously and so on. And so there had been revolts. And it might be hard for some Jewish believers to want to give any kind of allegiance to the human government under which they lived. And so Paul deals with this. There may have been some who were non-Jewish in the church. And they said, okay, we can respect government. However... What do you do when you have a governmental authority who doesn't honor God's truth or is cruel or abusive in their position? Let's remember, Paul is not writing in a time of an American democracy or republic. Rather, he's writing in a time when most authorities were not Christians, and many authorities were abusive and cruel with their power. And yet he writes and says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Peter echoes this teaching as well. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. Let every soul for the Lord's sake be subject to the higher authorities, to kings and governors and so on. And so Paul is writing that we have this responsibility. It's interesting that the Expositor's Bible commentary notes this word, be subject. It is a military term for being 
in a rank where there is someone who's an authority above you, and you respond to that authority. However, they suggest that in using the word subject to or submitting to, Paul could have used a stronger word in the Greek, obey. But he does not, indicating to us that while we are to be cooperative and supportive as much as we possibly could be, law-abiding citizens as Christians, there may come a point where a line needs to be drawn. We have examples of that in the Scripture. You go back to the Old Testament. Remember the old story of Daniel in the lion's den. Why is Daniel in the lion's den? Because the Bible tells us that in Daniel chapter 6, living in the government and involved in the government of the Medes and the Persians, a law is passed that says no one is to pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. And the law of the Medes and the Persians was unalterable. And yet Daniel, though he's in the government and he's a righteous man, goes as he always did into his chamber, opens his window toward Jerusalem, and prays to the Lord God. Those who hate Daniel are his political enemies, if you will. They use this law against him. The king who loves Daniel cannot spare him because the law is the law, and so he's cast into the den of lions. Here is Daniel, a government official, respectful of the king, does his job well, is a righteous man, but there comes a point where they said, you can't pray to God. He said, I have to. And of course, we know that God blessed him in the end by protecting him. Angels coming into that lion's den and shutting the lion's mouths. You come to the New Testament, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling authority, that the government of Rome allowed to have local authority over the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin came to Peter and John, and they said, you can't preach in the name of this man Jesus. You're stirring up trouble. He's dead. He's gone. No more. And yet Peter and John and other apostles went right back out and started preaching in the name of Jesus again. They're hauled in before the authorities. They said, didn't we tell you stop preaching that? And they reply in Acts chapter 5, in this case, we ought to obey God rather than man. There may be a time when a government mandate contradicts a biblical command. Then a Christian's duty is clear. There may be a time when the government allows something to be legal. And yet the Bible would not call it right. In that case, the Christian's duty is clear. We follow the Bible. Perhaps Paul's principle guides us well in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, where he says, as much as is in you, if it is possible, as much as lies in you, live at peace with all men. So while we would never biblically call for civil disobedience, if there is a time, where the law of God and the law of man are contradictory, and we follow the law of God, we would only see it not as a loophole, but as a last resort. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Not only do we see a responsibility here, we see a recognition here. 
It says in the end of verse 1, the authorities that exist have been established by God. I believe personally that there are three institutions that God has ordained. One, the home. Two, the church. And three, human government. Some suggest that the very early seeds for human government are found just after the flood. In Genesis 9 and verse 6 where God said to Noah and his children, If someone sheds man's blood, then by man shall their blood be shed. In other words, if someone goes out and murders someone, God says there is to be an accounting from other human beings. There is to be a stoppage and a penalty regarding crime and chaos. And it seems to be, as we read Paul's writing here, with the intention that the governmental authorities are to honor good and punish bad, that God instituted government with the idea that it would control crime and chaos and hopefully bring the comfort of safety and security to the people that are ruled by that government. It's what you might call law and order. The law bringing about the order. I digress for just a moment. Does anybody here like corny jokes? You can admit it. Thank you. I see three of you. I see that hand. Amen. Just recently, we were having a favorite summer treat, popsicles. Now, it's a funny thing in my family. They have certain choices. I get stuck with the popsicles they don't like. But it's okay. Anyway, we eat the popsicles so we can get to the stick, which has a corny little joke on it. And I just came across one recently. Do you know what you get when you cross a policeman and a skunk? Law and odor. Now, if you're a policeman, believe me, the Bible teaches us to respect you. So don't take it wrong. If you're a skunk, we're for you too, okay? But, uh, so, but anyway, law and order. God instituted human government to control chaos, crime, and to bring comfort. I loved reading about Martin Luther, the great reformer, and his take on human government. He said this, human government is the left hand of God's kingdom, whereby bad men are controlled by God putting other bad men in control. I thought that was pretty good. Not only is government ordained by God, but God is sovereign over all governments. One who learned this well was one who ruled the world at one time, basically. His name in Daniel chapter 4 was Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled distant lands as well as his own Babylonian kingdom. He was considered, in essence, a world ruler. He has a dream, and he calls Daniel whom God has gifted to interpret dreams. And he says, Daniel, I had this dream of a great tree and the birds of the air gathered in the tree. He said, but then the tree was cut down and only the stump remained. And for seven seasons, the weather covered the stump. What does it mean? Daniel, terrified at the interpretation, said, King, it's about you. You are that great tree. 
You rule the distant lands, the birds, as it were, of all the nations are gathered to you. But so that you may learn that the Most High overrules the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whom He wishes, your sanity will be taken away. And for seven years you will act like a wild animal. And then after seven years you'll be restored. It's one year later because Nebuchadnezzar does not repent. That while he's walking on the walls of Babylon acknowledging the great city he has built so that the Most High would reveal that he controls the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whom he wishes, his sanity was removed. He began to live like a wild animal. He ate grass like an ox. And for seven seasons of the years, the snow and the wet and the rain and the cold passed over him. And then after seven years, the Bible says God restored his sanity. He was raised back to his throne. And then he lifted his hand and he said, I will praise the Most High who lives forever and ever. Daniel 4.35, he does as he pleases. In governments, as in all things, God is sovereign. In our system of government, by the way, I don't find that the Bible promotes one system over another. It simply speaks of human government. But in our system, we have the privilege to pray and to work and to participate and to vote, hoping and aiming that those with ideals that we believe in will be elected. But then, once the election has taken place, we bow before the sovereign will of God. Also, in recognition that God institutes government, the Bible tells us we are, as Christians, to not only do what is right and lawful so we won't get punished, be penalized, get a ticket, or go to jail. But rather also for conscience sake, as a Christian, recognizing God institutes human government, recognizing that as much as possible, God wants us to be law-abiding citizens. And so we are to do right, not only so we won't get in trouble, but we are to do right because it's the right thing to do. Thirdly, I see here revenue. Look down to verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. I know of a preacher who every time he'd come across a law officer, he'd say, hey, how's the ministry going? The guy said, I'm not the ministry. What are you talking? Yeah, you are. The Bible says if you're in a governmental authority, you're a minister. You're God's servant. The Bible says here that we pay taxes to provide for the government, this institution that God has ordained. Jesus acknowledged that. They brought to him a denarii. And that was a different coin than the drachma. But the denarii had Caesar's inscription on it. And when they were trying to trick Jesus with a tax question and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, give to God's what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Matthew chapter 17, we find Jesus paying taxes another time. 
There was a temple tax that the Jewish ruling body required for the care of the temple. It was two drachma, a different coin that did not have Caesar's inscription on it because my understanding is that they didn't want the Roman Caesar's inscription on coins that entered the temple. One of the reasons they had money changers in the outer courts. And so they come and they say to Peter, doesn't your master pay taxes? And it's almost like Peter's not sure how to answer that. And he finally says, yes. And then he goes to Jesus and Jesus gives him a lesson on taxation. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I've been in church since I was born. And I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon on that particular passage of Matthew 17. But simply the fact after Jesus instructs Peter a little bit, he still pays the tax. And he says to Peter, go fishing. He said, the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and when you do, you're going to find a coin. It was a four drachma coin. He said, you go pay the taxes for yourself and for me as well. So the Lord Jesus paid his taxes. It's interesting here that even Paul is saying, this is a way that God provides for these servants of his who keep crime and chaos under control in this world. You see, for the home... The Bible teaches us the way to provide is work. In fact, the Bible says if you have a family and you don't work to provide for them, if you're able, obviously, you're worse than an unbeliever. The Bible tells us that in the church we give to support the ministers and the ministry. And in the government, the taxation is a form of support. It's interesting. They said to Jesus, should we give the taxes to Caesar? And Jesus comes back with a word that's a little bit different, give back. Paul uses that same word in verse 7 here, giving back and paying taxes. In other words, it's like you are rendering payment for a service that has been rendered to you as God has ordained human government to provide in controlling chaos crime and to hopefully bring comfort and a sense of security and safety and opportunity. And then finally, notice respect. It says in the verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, it's interesting here that there is the idea of respect and honor. Doesn't it sound like repetition? And yet in studying this out, some see respect as the greater term. Some see it as the equivalent to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, fear God, honor the king. And so they see it, this respect, that is something we give to God as the ultimate governor and then honor to the lesser authorities of earth. Some see it as respect and honor in the sense of we give respect to the highest human authority, but also honor, as it were, lesser authorities. In our own country, our president, Mr. Obama, receives distinctive honor that not even the vice president receives or any other authority. Why? Because he's the president though we honor other authorities. Some see it as respect being for an honorable person in an office 
Whereas honor itself being for uh, anybody that's in an office. In other words, we respect the office even if we necessarily don't have a respect for the person themselves. I remember as a young pastor in Los Angeles, our church was in one of the 13 districts of the city of Los Angeles. And our representative on city council was Joan Milky Florence. She had served our community well for a number of years. We had been in contact with her about a couple of small zoning issues for our church and so on. And she was well appreciated, well respected, had been good to the uh, uh, residents of that area of Los Angeles. And so one day in church, as I had been studying this passage, we had a day where we came, we gave her a plaque, and we honored her. As I think back on I didn't even ask her what religion she was. But I just knew that she had been a blessing to the community. And so it wasn't just the fact that we honored her position, but we honored her as a person for the good and the blessing she had brought to our community there in the greater city of Los Angeles. And so the Bible teaches us that when it comes to this matter of human government, there is to be responsibility law-abiding citizens as much as we can be until we're called to violate the will of God. And then we have to make a stand. Along with that, we're to show a great respect. And we're to show our recognition that God has ordained government. And we are to appropriately pay our revenue. A couple of concluding thoughts. As I read this portion, I think back to the American Revolution. And I wonder if I had been living in Pennsylvania as a citizen of the colony when the tax revolt against England came, and I'm reading this passage, how I might have felt a tension about should we revolt or not. Now, don't misunderstand me. Living in 2014, I'm glad we did. <laughs> God bless America. But you can see where someone might have had attention there. My other thought is this. Do you realize that as believers, we have a dual citizenship? John Robinson was an elder in our congregation until he and his family moved to South Carolina a few years ago. And if I have the story correctly, John had dual citizenship. His parents were Americans who were in Brazil at the time he was born. So he had a Brazilian citizenship and an American citizenship. Well, in a sense, we as believers have the same thing. You see, we have an earthly citizenship, but we also have a heavenly citizenship, Philippians 3 and verse 20, where the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the most common way that you have an earthly citizenship is to be born in that country. The only way you have a heavenly citizenship is to be born again. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us to save us from our sins, to forgive us and give us eternal life. He rose again. We look to Him for salvation. And the Bible says in John 1, those who trust Him become the children of God, born again. In other words, citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Or as Jesus said in John 3 and verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And so today, I challenge all of us, are you born again 
and let us live to the best of our ability. Romans 13. Amen.